So let's dive into the word here. There was a knock at my door on a Saturday morning, and it was early. If you know me, I don't like morning at all. If you disturb my Saturday morning, which is the one morning when I kind of like to sleep in and be lazy, it usually doesn't go very well for you. And so at, you know, 8.45 on a Saturday morning, not a good time to ring my doorbell. And I walk to my door, I look through the window, and there's a young guy, kind of college age, standing on my front doorstep. He's kind of slouched, and he's got a one-gallon plastic jug in his hand. And as soon as I opened the door, I think I, kind of, I, I think I kind of startled him. I'm not sure he expected someone to answer the door. But the second he opened the door, or I opened the door, he went full-on infomercial on me. I mean, he snapped to attention and was like, good morning, sir. My name is David. Do you have any unsightly stains in your life? Because if you do, I have the answer. This product in this jug is better than Windex, Clorox, Fantastic Bleach, and Palm Olive, or any other household cleaner. And if you will give me just a few moments of your time, I will astound you with the contents of this bottle. I ask you again, sir, do you have a stain? And I'm thinking two things. Number one, you've had way too much coffee. And number two, I'm borderline OCD, man. Everything in my life is a stain, okay? You know, (laughs) everything needs to be cleaned and reorganized. That's how it works. Well, this guy proceeds to launch himself into this memorized script that he fired off with machine gun accuracy. And he used the words more, better, and awesome in about 10 minutes than any other human being I've ever run across. The pinnacle of his presentation was he wanted to show me how environmentally friendly his product was. So he actually undid the top, pulled out the little plastic tubing, and he licked it off to show me how friendly it was to the environment. The funny thing was he licked it off and then almost gagged, which I thought (laughs) served you right. You know, Um, here's the sad thing about his presentation. I bought it. I I did. I spent 60 bucks on a gallon of household cleaner out of pity for this poor guy. I mean... If you were out selling door-to-door on a Saturday morning, I might buy something from you too. So don't come to my house, all right? Girl Scout cookie season's over. Leave me alone, all right? I mean, the reality is I bought that particular thing that that he was selling. And, And you say, what does that have to do with Colossians? The church in Colossians was dealing with a problem, all right? A group of teachers had showed up using words like, you can have more. You can have a fuller experience. You can have a better life. If you just add what we're selling to Jesus, you're going to have eternity for five easy payments of $19.95. That's basically how it went. And Paul hears about this, and as their pastor, he writes a letter to them about these false teachers, and he basically says, don't buy it. Just don't buy it. Colossians chapter 2, Paul says this, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea, for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this, so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. Okay, let me tell you what the fine-sounding arguments were that Paul was talking about. These false teachers came in and were telling the church a couple of lies. Here they are. Number one, they were telling them knowledge is hidden. Okay, they were insinuating that God was actually holding out on people and that a part of the Christian journey was that God was going to send people out on on a treasure hunt. And you've probably heard stuff like this before, because here was kind of the hook that they used. They would say, God has hidden a whole bunch of wisdom and knowledge, but here's the cool thing. He told me where it was. 
So if you just follow me, I can lead you to the hidden treasure. Because I'm the key between you and everything that God has for you. They basically are saying, if you follow me, I'm going to let you in on God's little secret. Okay? Here was another fine-sounding argument. They were saying, do you know your body is evil? They were teaching that all of the problems of man were encapsulated in the body and that your body was actually the source of all of your bad decisions. And thirdly, they were teaching that Jesus only seemed to be human. They were teaching that Jesus wasn't fully human and therefore he couldn't relate to us on all levels because he was kind of trapped over here on the God side of things. Now you listen to those subtle little lies and you go, that doesn't seem like that big of a deal until you realize they are absolutely opposed to everything else that the Bible teaches. Let me tell you the corresponding truth. The Bible teaches that Jesus provides all of the knowledge that we need. That all of the knowledge we need about God is embodied in Jesus and that God isn't playing a game of bait and switch and that wisdom and knowledge are actually available, according to Scripture, to anybody who's wise enough to ask for it. The Bible also teaches that God embodied himself in Jesus Christ. Your body, in and of itself, is not evil. Jesus had a physical body, and he wasn't evil. It's the heart and the mind that are desperately wicked in a human being, and that can lead us down a wrong path. And it's true, the body can be used as a tool for evil, but Jesus proved that you can actually have one of these earth suit things, and still make godly and holy perfect decisions. The Bible also teaches Jesus was fully God and fully human. Jesus took on human flesh, but was still completely God. The reason he was is because he came bodily, to die bodily, so that he could be raised from the dead bodily, so that there were no questions that when Jesus dealt with our sin once and for all, it was dealt with completely Totally, comprehensively, exhaustively, triumphantly. And that's all of the Lee words that I could think of, okay? You get the picture? So Paul's warning the believers in Colossae and the believers in Whatcom County. He's saying this, look, if anybody ever shows up in your life and says it's Jesus plus something, don't buy it. Not Jesus plus church attendance, Jesus plus a dress code. Jesus plus a political affiliation. Jesus plus a special kind of diet. It, it, it's like, not, don't fall for it. Some of it can be good, but don't fall for it. Don't attach anything to Jesus. And he's really teaching a principle of a fine-sounding argument that goes like this. If someone can talk you into something, somebody smarter can talk you out of it. It's just the way it works. Paul's saying, look, you have everything that Jesus taught you, so don't get taken in by slick-sounding religious types who are trying to sell you a false message of Jesus plus something. And Paul's just being a good pastor here. Then he goes on in verse 5 and says this, For though I'm absent from you in body, I'm present with you in spirit, and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, Continue to live your life in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. I have a picture of what Paul just said in my backyard. Seven years ago, I planted a sweet gum tree in my backyard. I put it in the right kind of soil. I watered it regularly. I live in Washington, so God waters it regularly. I fertilize it. I prune it. And that thing has grown like crazy. It's like over 16 feet tall. It provides beautiful shade in my backyard. And Paul's saying, have that picture in your head and understand this. You were planted in Jesus, so continue to grow in Jesus. Put your roots down deep into Jesus. Get nourishment and strength from knowing, not about Jesus, but about entering into a relationship fully with Him. Stretch. 
grow, provide shade for other people who need a little bit of relief, cover each other, and bear fruit. And he encourages them. He says, don't ever stop growing. And then one more time, he warns them. And the warning that Paul gives the church in Colossians is so relevant to the church in Whatcom County, it's unbelievable. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. I listed some of the hollow and deceptive philosophies. I listed them in your outline. Some of you will say, where did you find them? I'll tell you where. I found them in the coffee shops and restaurants of Whatcom County. Okay, I don't normally eavesdrop on your conversation, but if you talk loud enough for somebody else to hear, it's fair game, right? It's fair game. And I just listen to the conversations that are happening around me, because if you listen to the conversations that are happening around you, you will uncover the belief systems that are happening right in the world around you. And I listed off some of the most, what I believe to be the most prevalent philosophies that you're going to find here in Whatcom County. The first one is this, okay? And I'm going to use some great big fancy terms because I have a thesaurus and I can and it's fun and it'll make you think that we're way smarter than we actually are. Okay, ready? Don't get caught up in the language, just stick with me. The first one is modern therapeutic deism. Wee, right? Okay. Modern therapeutic deism is a term that came out of a book called Soul Searching, the religious and spiritual lives of American young people. It was written by sociologists Christian Smith and Melinda Denton. And the term used is used to describe what they consider to be the most common belief among American young people. They interviewed thousands of college students, thousands of them. And they discovered that a, a, a large number of college students had created their own belief system. It was kind of a hybrid of spiritual approaches. And if you wanted to boil down the commonalities, you could boil down their belief system into five basic tenets, okay? Number one is this, that there is a God, they got that right, who exists, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life. So far, so good, right? Secondly, they believe God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. So suddenly you kind of take a bit of a universalist turn. Thirdly, they believe the central goal in life, this is what life is all about, is to be happy and feel good about yourself. All of a sudden, we take a bit of a humanist turn. Fourthly, they believe God does not want to be particularly involved in one's life, except, of course, when God has needed to resolve a problem. So God's on the end of a doorbell, and you have a problem, you just hit the doorbell, and He shows up, what do you need? And He fixes it for you. That's His role, according to modern therapeutic deists. And number five, they believe good people go to heaven when they die. So basically, as long as you're good enough, it's all going to be good. We're all going to make it across the finish line anyway. And you kind of look at it and you go, what well, doesn't seem that bad? Until you understand, this philosophy views God as something like a combination between a divine butler and a cosmic therapist. You know, he's always on call. He takes care of any problems that come up. He professionally helps his people to feel good about themselves. And he never becomes too involved in the process. And on the surface, it seems good. I mean, who wouldn't want Dr. Jesus on call, right? Who wouldn't want to be able to just call up, I need an hour, you're going to fix everything for me? 
The problem is this, what it neglects is the fact that God is not decidedly distant, but instead he says he's intimately involved and intensely cares about everything that's going around, uh, on around us. And he doesn't want to just fix your soul so you can feel better about yourself. He actually wants to deliver you from the eternal problem of sin. He wants to allow you to live a life that is full and abundant, but he doesn't want you to, uh, to, to fool yourself into thinking that this life is actually all about you, when actually it's all about him. It's, it's God just reinforcing enforcing the fact that modern therapeutic deism is just going to lead you to a place where you're unbelievably empty. And Paul says, do you remember back to the first chapter? I want you to understand this. Jesus is supreme in all things, and in him all things hold together. That that's what life is all about. Here's another modern philosophy. I called it self-actualized moral relativism. Right? Okay? This approach basically says this. Number one, that appropriate lines of sexuality are placed by individual choice. That basically you get to put your moral compass wherever you want to. And secondly, that any constriction on said lines are a violation of personal choice and are therefore invalid. So this approach, which is held by lots of people in our world today, says there's no moral compass and you can do whatever you want with whoever you want and there'll be no ramifications or consequences. Basically says you're free to experiment and to use people for sexual gratification. And God is cool with it because after all, it's natural. And he made you that way. Jesus says, I did place a natural inclination and drive inside of each one of you. And it's supposed to be focused in one direction. The direction of holiness and the direction of purity. And God is so unbelievably gracious that he even built in a line that said, even if you've already crossed over that line, the grace of God is so unbelievably irresistible that it will dip itself around you and surround you. And even if you've crossed that line, God can restore your purity and forgive you and and, and reestablish you as one of his pure, beautiful children. It's the beautiful part of God. The unfortunate part is that some people attach themselves to that and then years later they end up going, you know, I chased after all of these relationships. I thought they would fulfill me and I just ended up empty. Here's the next one. I called it non-religious legalism. We see this philosophy in the corporate world and it kind of works like this. Maybe you've heard somebody say this. I am in charge of my own destiny. It's the self-help tagline, right? I am in charge of everything. Can I I just ask you a question? How can you be in charge of your destiny if you're not even in charge of your Monday? You know? I mean, you can't can't dictate what's happening tomorrow. i got a calendar set up for tomorrow, but only God knows what's going to happen with my 3 o'clock appointment. Right? And we like to think, I'm in control And I have to put all of this energy moving towards this thing. I'm going to ascend up the corporate ladder. If anybody gets in my way, I'm going to crawl right over top of them. Because I am the master of my own destiny. Someone who believes in non-religious legalism will say, I answer to nobody. Which basically means this. Like I kind of broke it down. They believe I make my own rules. And you better not superimpose your rules on my rules. Number two, they believe I measure others by my rules. So they believe they hold the measuring stick, they have all of the power, and anybody who doesn't adhere to their rules is an idiot or they're out to get me and they must be exterminated or at the very least they need to be stepped on. And they believe they only answer to themselves, but the truth is this, number three, that I perform to be accepted by other people. 
that everything in my life is about gaining acceptance. Because if, if I'm accepted, I'll be able to continue to ascend up this corporate ladder. Can I tell you something from experience? Do you know what is at the top of the corporate ladder? More ladder. And when you get to the top of that, there's more ladder there. Because somebody else is in control of also measuring their standards against your standards, and they will put their thumb up against the edge of your life. And very, very quickly, because they are human beings, in spite of your best effort, they will end up responding this way. And the truth is, we all do it. We all hold our standards. Because at some level, we all wrap ourselves in a little bit of legalism that says, I think I'm the benchmark. And everybody else just doesn't quite measure up. That's what I use in order to feel better about myself. Now, people often think that the only legalists in the world are uptight church people. When in reality, we're all legalists because we like to measure everybody else by our standard, both up and down. But seeing I brought up religious legalist people, let's pick on them because it's fun. Okay? All right. So... There's another philosophy that you will see that's also very hollow and deceptive, and that is the philosophy of religious legalism. You have met these people before, right? And I'm going to describe just kind of how they operate, because they would believe this. If they are a religious legalist, they're never going to come out and say it, but this is what they believe. They believe, number one, my rules are God's rules. And because I have a thorough knowledge of God's rules, I like to use verses as weapons, And I will throw them and pick off people if they don't measure up to the standard that I believe that God has given me. Number two, they believe legalism is self-appointed. So they won't come right out and say it, but this is what they believe. I figured out this whole Christian thing, and now I need to share the fact that I've arrived with all of the struggling people who are trying to get where I have already ascended. Religious legalists believe, number three, that criticism is a spiritual gift. And they love to criticize. They will say, I decide what's good and what's bad, and I've got verses to back it up. And they will say, my goal is to sit in a glass house and throw stones at those around me because I get it, and it's so obvious that everybody else does it. A religious legalist will also believe this, number four, that the Trinity is a quartet that includes them. (laughs) They won't come out and say it, but they've basically taken the role of junior Holy Spirit, and this is how it works. If I want your opinion, I'll give it to you. That's how it works. And finally, a religious legalist will get all wrapped up in number five. I perform to be accepted by God. Some of us look at that and go, what's wrong with that? Well, if we don't get anything else, let's get this. God does not want your performance. He wants you. See, we fall into the trap even. It's Jesus plus a church attendance record. Jesus plus a dress code. Jesus plus a certain kind of Bible reading plan. Not any other, not just any Bible reading plan. It's got to be my Bible reading plan. And we end up on a spiritual treadmill running a thousand miles an hour that doesn't take us anywhere. God doesn't want your performance. He wants you. If you talk to a religious legalist long enough, 
and they come clean, they'll basically say, my life is a treadmill of religious function, and I'm running, and I'm trying to get God's approval, but I'm not getting anywhere, and it's exhausting trying to live my life and do God's job at the same time. And here's what Paul says to the church in Whatcom County and the church in Colossians. He goes, hey, don't get caught up in that stuff. Don't live your life with Jesus plus modern therapeutic deism. Don't live your life Jesus plus self-actualized moral relativism. Don't do Jesus plus legalism in any way. He's saying, no, you met Jesus. Jesus transformed you. Jesus is more than enough. He filled you completely. You don't need anything more than that. Don't listen to people who will come along and say that it's Jesus plus this type of an interpretation or Jesus plus this. Don't listen to the people who will say it's Jesus plus a seed gift. And if you take that seed gift and put it in an envelope and mail it away to Alpharetta, Georgia. God will bless you a thousand times for everything you put in there, and you will have a happy life for five easy payments of $39.95. You watch that channel too? Jesus plus. I love how Paul just drives it home in verse 9. He says this, guys, in Christ... All of the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. In Christ, you've been brought to fullness. And he's the head over every power and authority. Paul saying it's Jesus is enough. That's what filled you completely. Now some of you go, yeah, but Grant, I don't feel like it. Can we just have a super honest moment? When was the last time your feelings served you well? I mean, I can make myself feel sad. I can make myself feel glad. Anybody else in the room? I can make my feelings sound like God. Okay, you got, no, no, everybody lied. You just lied in church, okay? <laughs> 8.30 was like, yeah, that's us, right? Come on, 10 o'clock, right? Have you ever noticed that? I can make God sound exactly like me. If I'm feeling a certain way or I want him to tell me something, it's like, oh, that must have been God right there. When was the last time your feelings served you well? Paul says, no. In Jesus, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. He's saying, your feelings may not tell you you're full, but on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Christ doesn't move. Everything else moves. My feelings fluctuate up. They fluctuate down. But God is that standard that allows me to stay firm in one place. And he says, whether I feel like it or not, if I have a personal relationship with him, I have been filled to the full. He came that I might have life and have it to the full. So I'm in a restaurant this week, and in the corner booth, I hear something that I recognize. Two ladies from Christ the King in the corner, reading the book of Colossians out loud to each other in their small group. I love that. Somebody's actually doing it. They were reading from the message, like I talked about last week. It's a paraphrase, not a translation of Scripture, and they're reading out loud and I, I was so touched by the words that I heard. Let me read everything that we just read in completely different language so that maybe it, it, it'll, it'll be able to permeate what's here and make that 18-inch drop right into here. So I just want you to listen, and I want you to watch. My counsel for you is simple and straightforward. 
Just go ahead with what you've been given. You received Christ the Master, now live in Him. You're deeply rooted in Him. You're well constructed upon Him. You know your way around the faith. Now do what you've been taught. School's out. Quit studying the subject and start living it. And let your living spill over in thanksgiving because you're already full. Watch out for people who try to dazzle you with big words and intellectual double talk. They want to drag you off into endless arguments that never amount to anything. They spread their ideas through empty traditions of human beings and empty superstitions. But that's not the way of Christ. Everything of God gets expressed in Him so you can see and hear Him clearly. Listen to this. You don't need a telescope. You don't need a microscope. And you don't need a horoscope to understand that you're already full. I love those words. To realize the fullness of Christ and the emptiness of the universe without Him. When you come to Him, that fullness came together inside of you. I'm loving this. My custodians are freaking out. That's good. His power extends over everything. Everything into this fullness is not something that you need to strive for or try to figure out. It's not about keeping a long list of laws. No, understand this. You're already in. You're insiders. Not through some secret initiation rite, but rather through what Christ has already gone through for you. He destroyed the power of sin. If it's a ritual you're after, you already covered it when you went through baptism. Going under the water was a burial of your old life. Coming up out of it was a resurrection. God raising you from the dead as He did in Christ and in full. It's full. Paul says the world will leave you empty, but Christ is the only one who can fill you to the full, to the point where you just overflow. Here's what Paul wants to reinforce. Here's the truth. He goes, I want every one of you in Colossians and everyone in Whatcom County that knows Jesus to be able to say this. I am completely full in Jesus. I'm or I am fully accepted in Jesus. I don't need to perform for him. He's given me his full attention. And finally, I have died with him fully, which means I get to live with him fully. So take the last 32 minutes, and we'll boil it down into one sentence. I don't need to buy what I already have. I don't need to invest in a cheap counterfeit and add anything to Jesus because there's nothing to add to Jesus. He's already given me everything I need. In wisdom and knowledge, I'm pursuing Him completely. I no longer have to do the checklist. They're no longer have-tos, now they're get-tos. And I am completely in full because I don't need to buy something that I already possess. It's not about what I've ever done for God. It's all about what He's done for me. And He provided everything I need to the full. So it's Palm Sunday. It's the moment when we... Look back at that, that moment when Jesus rode into Jerusalem and people hailed Him as King. Here's the bittersweet thing for me about Palm Sunday. They had Him. They had Him. He was right there in that moment. And yet people came along and started saying, there's got to be something more. 
carpenter from Nazareth? No way. Yeah, he was just a simple carpenter from Nazareth who fulfilled every single one of the Old Testament prophecies about Messiah. He was just a carpenter from Nazareth who could walk on water, heal the blind, raise the dead, and command nature to move around like you would make a request of a little tiny dog. When Jesus said the words in the middle of the storm, peace be still, it's a command that we would use if our dog was barking and we would go, hey, little puppy, hush it. That's how it's translated. He was just a simple carpenter who was, is, and always will be the perfect Son of God, the Son of the Trinity, with the approval of His Father, the encouragement and the comfort of the Holy Spirit coming together, and they had Him, and they let Him slip through their fingers. May we not make the same mistake. May we understand that there's nothing to add to Jesus because Jesus is fully complete. And it is in His completeness that we receive our fullness. So we're coming into Holy Week. Here it comes. Ready or not? Holy Week. Attached to spring break. Attached to spring. Attached to all this stuff. May we as the church of God have a soul-minded focus that simply says for us, those who have been saved in God's great mercy. May we be the ones to say for us, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Would you pray with me this morning as we close? God, we don't want to buy slick-sounding arguments. Lord, we want to be sharp-minded. We want to be we want to be discerning. So God, help us to know whenever it is that, that we ourselves or someone else is trying to add something to Jesus, another qualification. And Lord, I pray that we would never be sucked in by those fine-sounding arguments. I pray, Lord, for a realization today that we are full to the brim because of Christ. That He has come to give us life and give us life to the full. May we understand that our feelings may tell us different, but God, we choose the truth of knowing that Jesus completed everything we need. Father, may we find our fullness in Him. May our fullness overflow, God. Lord, may our hearts be so unbelievably full that it wouldn't even enter into our mind or our conscience to think that we could possibly call ourselves loving and withhold an invitation for someone to come and meet Jesus. God, I pray for those of us who may have invested a large part of our life in some empty philosophy. God, I know I did. So many years wrapped in the humanism of thinking that I was actually in charge. Only to find out that every time I thought I made it, it was empty. So God, would you help us bring, would you help bring us back to the focus of the cross? The celebration of new life in Jesus. Lord, would you come and do exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask or even imagine this Easter season. 
And we pray these things in Jesus' precious and powerful name. And all God's people.